In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Don't worry, you didn't miss a passage read today by our readers. The passage I just quoted is from Isaiah 55, not Isaiah 58. But as I meditated over our lectionary this past week, these are God's words from Scripture that seem to come to my mind over and over. And this dilemma is what the passages in our lectionary today point to and address. First, God speaks through Isaiah to, to dismiss the false religiosity of Israel. The Israelites are aching for God to recognize them, to give them honor they think is due to them. God, why do you not see our fasting? God's reply, look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voices heard on high. The fast that I choose is to loose the bands of injustice. If you remove the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry, if you honor the Sabbath, not going your own ways, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will feed you. The psalm speaks of the blessedness of those who fear the Lord and delight in his commandments, delight in his way, not the way of the wicked. And in the Sermon of the Mount, which was just read, we don't see this loving, kind Jesus that is often portrayed, one who does not judge. Yet this is more of a fierce Jesus who asks for nothing less than perfection as he reiterates the law's command and requirements. And that he has not come to abolish those requirements, no, but to fulfill them in his very personhood. And his charge to his disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what are we to make of all this? Where do we see God's grace in it? Are these not demands that seem impossible to fulfill? And Paul, in our letter that we read today, is certainly not letting those Corinthians off the hook. On the other hand, Paul certainly had a situation on his hand in, Corinthian, in Corinth. Like the folks in Isaiah, these people cannot stop arguing. They are caught up in the petty arguments that arise out of the need to feel right. Being righteous is not on their minds, but knowing that they are part of what C.S. Lewis liked to call the inner ring. In their quest for honor and power, the Corinthians were dividing up into groups based on the status of their leaders. Does this sound familiar? Paul found this abhorrent to the very meaning of the gospel. Rowan Williams puts it this way, Jesus did not come to be a competitor for space in the world. Rather, in his life, death, and resurrection, the human map is being redrawn, the world turned upside down, and the whole world of rivalry and self-defense is put into question. 
A cultural practice that underlies Paul's message here is the custom of making a public spectacle of comparing and evaluating favorite orators and the spiritual prowess of the various religions and philosophies. Corinthians made a sport of cheering, cheering on their favorite religions and sophists, like modern Americans cheer on their favorite football team. But Paul lays down all his own inherent natural abilities and skills and calls on the Corinthians to remember the source of their salvation is not found in a fancy message, that they were in fact drawn to Christ not through Paul's words alone, but through the power of the Spirit. So Paul wrote, When I came to you, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Thus, throughout this passage, Paul sets up the parallel ways in which God's wisdom contrasts with the world's wisdom. God's ways are not showy. God's messengers are not to try to become the centers of any cult of personality, but only to point the way to the true source of wisdom, Jesus Christ. Paul speaks of his weaknesses to draw attention away from himself, to draw attention to God's power. So while Paul's intent in this letter is to remove all suspicion and bad blood between himself and the Corinthians, he must also convince the Corinthians the value of a Christian life that runs in total contradiction to their culture. He thus points the Corinthians away from the easy wisdom of the world to God's wisdom, the great mystery that has been revealed to them, decreed before the ages, and here the play on words takes a turn. None of the world's rulers understand this, or else they would not have crucified him. Wisdom is first and foremost then a who, rather than a body of knowledge or a human capacity. And this who, Jesus Christ, is revealed again, not by show and not by human power, but by hiddenness, by a spirit who visits and indwells the human heart. By pointing the Corinthians inward, then, Paul is taking on the human condition, or as we like to call it, original sin. We think we understand ourselves, he states. We think because we are human, we even understand our human heart. But those who cannot receive God's spirit are unable to understand or be instructed in spiritual things. But when God's Spirit is at work within us, the very thoughts of God are in us, for he is in us. And for here, Paul makes a stunning claim. We have the mind of Christ. This means, then, our connection to God is not external, but internal. Our human inclination is simply to take Christ's teachings and make ourselves conform to them. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says perhaps this is the easiest choice, but in fact it is the hardest. In fact, Lewis says it is impossible, and in the end we will all give up. For the true Christian way, according to Lewis, is different, harder and yet easier. Give me all, hand over the natural self, all the desires which you think innocent 
as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours." End quote. But, oh, how difficult it is to give over this natural self. For we humans cling to the sin of the garden. To be an autonomous self apart from God, we cannot believe in God's love or embrace his wisdom. Rather, we create our own identities, false identities, false selves, which really, in the words of David Benner, a series of masks created for others, but ultimately created to deceive ourselves. Benner continues, and I, this is from his book, The Gift of Being Yourself. This human capacity for self-deception is astounding. This is taught by scripture and confirmed by psychology. We may be highly skilled in deceiving others, but such duplicity pales in comparison with the endlessly creative ways with which each and every one of us deceive ourselves. The penetration of our delusions is enormously challenging. It requires a relentless commitment to truth. And here I think Benner hits it on the mark. A commitment to truth and a deep sense of freedom from fear of rejection. Nothing facilitates this like the knowledge of being deeply loved. So yes, we tend to be afraid to look inside ourselves, to know ourselves, because we know we are sinful. There is a temptation to focus on knowing God, but leaving the self out of our spirituality will result in a spirituality that is not grounded in reality. According to Benner, knowing God while failing to know ourselves will only produce an external form of piety, but there will always be a gap between reality and God, between our ways and God's ways. So the deceit may grow, or instead we may choose to penetrate that false self and discover the spirit of God who dwells within us greater than that darkness. Paul understands that to have the mind of Christ then is draw on our union with him in the spirit and to grow in that knowledge of the deep connection we have with God. Listen to Paul's words. God sent his son so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are God's children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Thus, self-knowledge that is pursued apart from knowing our identity in our relationship to God can easily lead to self-inflation or self-defeat. It can either result comes from pursuing the puffed-up, grandiose self that Paul warns about in Corinthians, in arrogance to which we are vulnerable when knowledge is valued more than love. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul speaks even more strongly of the antidote to a false self-love. 
drawing again away from all the reasons he has to be confident in the flesh, his status and his tribe, his profession, his righteousness as a Pharisee under the law, Paul confesses, yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ. So yes, when Jesus said our righteousness needed to be greater than the scribes and Pharisees, he wasn't talking about our human capacity for righteousness. He was talking about how he would become our righteousness through his Holy Spirit transforming our hearts. God's ways are not our ways, but rest in the faith that he is able to make our ways his when we embrace the spirit of God's love joined to our human spirit within our souls, what God has prepared for us. Abba Father, hidden, mysterious, but real. And the path? Surrender, embracing his presence, and aligning our hearts and lives to his. Amen.